2: To get started, visit plushcare.com weight loss. That's slash weight loss.
1: Equity mind.
2: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is What I learned at 20 is you Equity.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next fabulous episode of Equity Mates. We're here to Vogue our way through the world of investing. Whether you're a virgin investor or you're striking a pose like Warren Buffett, our goal is to open up your financial horizons from Material Girl to Wall Street Queen. As always, I'm joined by my equity buddy Ren, but who am I?
0: Well, I, I was going to say Anna Wintour, but you, Madonna. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. The Vogue uh, The Vogue almost got me... Anna Wintour the editor of Vogue, Through right? you. Oh, I'm not sure. Uh, Sasha is nodding, so um, I I have confirmation <laughs> The material there.
1: girl is what flipped it.
0: Uh, yeah, You. I think there was a couple of, show na- uh, yeah, a couple yeah. of song names yeah. in there. Like so, a virgin or whatever it
1: is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Anyway, uh, for people who are new to the show, welcome. Uh, Bryce uh, got sick of doing his normal introduction, so he asked ChatJPT to translate it into different... Famous characters, and we, as the audience, have to guess. But Bryce, this is a really exciting uh, interview that we have coming up. We're about to speak to Emma Fisher, who is the deputy head of equities and portfolio manager at Early Funds Management. Uh, and Emma is a a favorite of for us and for the Equity Mates community. Uh, we've spoken to her a number of times on the podcast, um, and she always has some really insightful things to say. and uh, and has some interesting stocks for us. So I'm yes. excited for this.
1: Yeah, really looking forward to this one. We're gonna split it into two parts. First is uh, understanding the psychology of investing and how Emma uh, really approaches the the mindset of investing and some of the, the biases that we all face as investors. And then the second half, we're gonna go deep on a number of stocks. Um, which we're, we're really pumped about. Because as you said, I think every interview we have with Emma, we leave feeling inspired, like we've learned a whole heap of stuff and just like, you know, um, she really knows what she's talking about.
0: So now that we've given Emma a really big pump <laughs> up, hopefully <laughs> she's on her game and she delivers, but I'm confident she will. Um, we're going to speak to her in a moment, but before then, it's important that we remind everyone listening that uh, whilst we are licensed and whilst Emma... Uh, is licensed none of us are aware of your personal financial circumstances Uh, this show is for education and entertainment purposes only any advice is general advice Uh, seek professional advice if you feel like you need it always do your own research Uh, but Bryce with that said let's crack in
1: well, Emma, welcome to Equity Mates.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, you're a fan favorite here at uh, Equity Mates. So we've gone to the community to ask uh, them if they have any questions, mm-hmm. which we're going to uh, put in throughout the episode. But we've got one here from Mark to kick things off. Mm-hmm. And he wants to know, what is the worst investment you have ever made?
2: Oh, Mark, right for the jugular. <laughs> <laughs> Um Oh, there's so many. There's so many. You know how they say like the first cut is the deepest, which I think they're talking about your first love, actually. (laughs) But Co-opted for my first really, really big mistake. Definitely Slater and Gordon. Uh, <laughs> no
0: way. <laughs> nice. I also made that mistake. That yes. was literally my first cut, my first investment.
2: Interesting. Yeah. That wasn't my first investment. My It was it was my first big blow up as a, so I started my, um, my first job in the markets was on the sell side, like working for um, an investment bank in equity research. And then I got a job on the buy side. Um, this wasn't at early So I was, you know, in my, I don't even know, I was 24, 25, you know, knew nothing, thought I knew everything. Uh, <laughs> and I remember. But uh, so, you know, at this fund, you're working with all sorts of portfolio managers that could invest globally. And this one portfolio manager who I thought was probably the smartest guy to ever come across, he ran an Asian fund so he could invest anywhere in Asia. And his largest position in his fund was Slater and Gordon. And he just thought it was, you know, I remember him just saying, I don't know what the economy is going to do, if it's going to go up or down, but I know people are always going to need lawyers. Uh, so I kind of came to covering the stock thinking this really smart guy has made this his largest position. And I think maybe that colored my view a little bit, but no excuses. Like I could not have got a stock more wrong. Mm. Uh, and I think the lessons, I guess I was colored by that also colored by it had just an enormous, you know, track record, um, of going up really. Mm. That's all it ever did. It had only ever gone up since it had listed. So, you know, the really big lessons from that are, firstly, you know, cash flow, like cash flow is king. This The clue that this business wasn't what it said it was, was a consistent um, divergence between the earnings that it was reporting to the market and the cash that it was generating. Now, there's always a narrative. There's always a narrative why cash lags. I've seen it in so many different businesses. Their narrative was, you know, basically it was their recognition around, it was like a no win, no fee model. So they had to recognize revenue uh, as they went and you know either way like just look through past the narrative look at the facts the facts are cash so i learned a really powerful lesson there it's given me a lifelong fear of big acquisitions debt funded big acquisitions Uh, roll ups, because it was essentially a roll up. And yeah, I mean, I learned a lot of really powerful lessons, but it was really painful experience. But there have been a lot of other mistakes as well. And there will be a lot of other ones in the future. But I think the difference now as you get older, and I guess more confident as an investor is you don't, you know, you don't let yourself fall to pieces because you can realize the. it sounds so trite, but like you learn so much through your mistakes, and Mm -hmm. it does make you a better investor. So you just don't get as caught up in it yeah. as, as I think I did back then. Mm. Um, and I don't know if that's your experience as well. Like when you hear Slater and Gordon, do you still feel like such <laughs> a... Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, we, we've made so much hay of it on the podcast <laughs> that it's, you know, net-net, right. net, it's probably worked out for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I think uh, it was a really good learning experience. And I, I think the, the first two investments I ever made were Slater and Gordon and then A2 Milk. And both of them I was dumb and overconfident and uh, didn't know what I was doing and one I lost all my money Uh, literally I lost so much money on Slater and Gordon that I couldn't cover the ComSec brokerage to sell it $12 $12 I had left over sat in my brokerage (laughs) account until Slater and Gordon cleaned up their register Wow! Uh, but then the second stock A2 Milk I got lucky on because you know it wasn't smarts or anything and I made more than I lost on Slater and Gordon. And it was a real lesson for me that like there's an asymmetric upside in investing. Yeah. You can only lose what you invest, but you can make a lot more than that. And I think those two experiences, I learned a lot and I got hooked.
2: Well, I also think the other really powerful lesson is is knowing that the worst is zero, right? Like, yeah. and, and I know you're saying in the sense of the you can only lose whatever you put in. But the flip side of that is, you know, we are equity market investors. So the businesses that we own can be worth nothing, not because they don't have assets and not because they're not still viable businesses, but because we rank below the debt holders, Mm. which is why it's given me a lifelong aversion to debt basically. The first part of our process at Ailey is the balance sheet. You know, we want companies with good balance sheets. And it's just been so formative for me to understand that that even decent businesses that are still operating and people in, I mean, Slater and Gordon was different because obviously, you know, people, people in the real world were aware that that was blowing up, but you can have other businesses that seem like everything's going well, but if they have too much debt, they will go under. Mm. Um, so I think it's always a really powerful lesson as equity investors to realize that the equity doesn't have to be worth anything
0: yeah Mm -hmm. well i think this is a good segue into what we're talking about today which is investing psychology because you mentioned there uh you learn a lot but also uh in there was some i guess mistakes in your analysis and how you were thinking about the investment colored by other people that you were working with so i think there's there's a few aspects there that we will draw out in more detail But let's start generally, when we talk about the psychology of investing, what are some of the key elements that come to mind as important for you?
2: Yeah, I think even temperedness is really important. And probably actually the most important thing is that you've got to be willing to be wrong. Uh, I think this is true in a lot of jobs, right? I was actually reading before I came here, I was reading some Vogue Living, actually. Flex. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a very sophisticated person. Um, I was reading Vogue Living and it was just an article about an interior designer and this guy had been working for decades. And they basically asked him, like, what's the secret to interior design? And he said, you've got to make mistakes. I make 100 mistakes a day. Try things. Doesn't work try something else. Mm. Um, And I think it's the same with investing, you know, hopefully you're not making a hundred mistakes a day, but you've got to be prepared to be wrong because if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll just either sit on the fence or you'll own the really safe, obvious stuff. And I can assure you, the safe, obvious stuff is probably overvalued or fairly valued, and it will never make you uh, outperform, which is, I suppose, the goal of my job. It's a little bit different. The goal of a personal investor is to grow their wealth. So, you know, you can grow your wealth through safe blue chip investments, but you can also, you know, just invest in the index uh, and probably get a similar, if not better, return. So, my job is effectively to outperform the index over the medium term. And the way that I think we seek to do that from a psychological perspective is you've got to be able to lean into the fear. You know, there's lots of ways that I think I've kind of helped myself do that over the years. The first one is, I guess it's exposure therapy, right? Like I remember when I first started in this industry, so many people said to me, you know, if your success rate is 60%, you'll be one of the best you'll be one of the best. Mm. And I kept thinking, you know, I was really young, right? You come from uni, you're a high achiever, you wanna get high marks, I'm like 60%. Pff, yeah. Just <laughs> watch me, I get 100 That's, exactly that. that's <laughs> incredible, that's easy. <laughs> yeah, P's, earn, P's don't earn degrees in, well, P's actually earned degrees in funds management. Yeah, so I was like, yeah, I'll beat that, <laughs> that'll yeah. be easy. But it's true, you, you, know, you, you probably are gonna be wrong 40%. I learned a really powerful lesson um, over the last few years in managing a portfolio. Um, which is just recognizing you know so we own 30 stocks typically at one time recognizing that not every stock is going to work for you every year Mm -hmm. if you look at them individually and try to make every single one of them work that year you'll basically try and cut all risk off the table and then you'll never succeed so just acknowledging when you look across a portfolio that some things are going to work for you. Some things aren't that year, but hopefully in the long term, you know, they're all winners and not trying to outrun bad news. You know, I always say to myself, if it's in the news, it's in the price. You know, the the big, the big kind of, so there's two things I say to myself. Firstly, if it's in the news, it's in the price. And then secondly, the lower the share price, the lower the risk. Like I think they're two really important refrains to keep in mind when you're investing. But the big caveat to both of those rules is the balance sheet, because uh, in fact, if the balance sheet is poor, the lower the share price, the higher the risk. Because mm-hmm. if they have to raise, the, the market can see it coming a mile away. Um, there was a stock last week, Integral Diagnostics, they're a radiology company. They had a downgrade. It wasn't even a massive downgrade, but the stock was off 30% because immediately the market was like, your, your gearing's now shot up to like three and a half times net debt to EBITDA. Your covenants, your debt covenants are only slightly above that. You're going to need to raise. And so what, what was... You know, really just a, a blip, I suppose, in this company's earnings history became a really huge um, day of value destruction because the market suddenly cottoned on to the fact that this company had a really stretched balance sheet. So if the balance sheet's bad, don't touch it. That's where I think you need to have a sell discipline of if you can see how it's all about the reflexivity of, of earnings and the balance sheet. So if earnings fall and then the balance sheet's suddenly much more geared, looking like they need to raise... Then that's an instance where I think you should cut your losses. But if the balance sheet's good and it should be good, you know, that's why we start with it. It should be good. Every investment you make should be a business with a good balance sheet, because it covers all manner of sins. Uh, if the balance sheet's good, then you know, the lower the share price, the lower the risk. I've had that refrain sort of going through my mind. At the moment, you know, one stock that we've been buying a lot of is ResMed and it's been falling like a stone, right? Mm. So I've had this refrain going through my mind for weeks watching this thing gap down because obesity is suddenly cured. (laughs) Um, And so we've been adding to it every day, basically. And I just keep telling myself, well, it's got a good balance sheet, cracking balance sheet. So the lower the share price, the lower the risk. Like that's all there is to it. So I think you just have to be a little bit dispassionate, which is, it sounds easy, but it's really hard because when your money's on the line, like, you know, that incites passion, right? Like, and people are so risk averse and they feel, feel, I think, you know, you feel like you need to take action when things aren't going well. Um, When a stock's blowing up on you, you really feel like you need to do something. But actually sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. I remember when I was working, um, Slater and Gordon was blowing up. I'm pretty sure it was Slater and Gordon. That or something else that was blowing up. Had um, an analyst that I worked with. He was older than me. He was probably one of the more respected analysts in the team. And he came up to me and he just said, you know, my advice for you today. It was one of those days where, like, the stock was down 20 or 30%. um, And he's like, my advice for you today is, like, you know, just turn off your computer and go for a walk in the Botanic Gardens, which was opposite our office. Mm. Just... Remind yourself of how well you did at uni and like your achievements in life. No (laughs) joke, that's what he said. He's like, remind yourself how well you did in uni and like what you've achieved in your life and like your family and friends. Like, just forget about this for a day, and I did it, and it was really helpful, right? Like, because you want to do something when something's happening, but actually, you know, you probably shouldn't do anything. Now, Slater and Gordon was different because at any any one of those days where it was gapping down, you probably would have done well to just sell out. But this is why I come back to the balance sheet thing. I remember a similar time, this would have been a decade ago, again with ResMed. We haven't owned it for a decade, but we did own it a decade ago. And um, they were doing a trial, a clinical trial. And basically they wanted to kind of move up the acuity curve and and sell something into hospitals. And so you need a lot of clinical evidence to prove that something is safe and and, and a good treatment um, to sell into the hospital channel. And so they were doing this big clinical trial. Uh, And they suddenly put out this announcement that said, we've had to stop this trial because it's had a safety signal. Now, safety signal, basically, you've got um, an ethics committee that kind of have a look at the trial results while they're going. And if um, the safety signal is triggered, they stop the trial. Um, now, in this instance, it was triggered because not only was this product not doing what they wanted it to do, um, which was reduce incidence of heart failure, it was actually killing people. Like you're seeing higher incidence of heart failure when people were on this device. So it's like the worst kind of safety signal you can get. So not only did it... Um, Uh, remove kind of like a horizon three for ResMed opportunity to sell something into the hospital market. But they dusted the money on the clinical trial. And there was all sorts of like, I I suppose, in the moment, fearful kind of implications from this. So the stock opened and fell 18% that day. And I can't remember exactly what I did. I don't know whether I can't really remember in the story if we did take any action or if I said to sell or anything like that. But I remember feeling very fearful that we should be selling. I remember again, a colleague saying, well, maybe just think about it, sleep on it. And if you think it's worth selling tomorrow, do it tomorrow, which was really good advice. And again, now I would look, I didn't have this framework at the time, but now I would look back on that instance and say, well, you've got these two situations, one where Slater and Gordon's dropping 20%, one where ResMed's dropping 20%, what's the difference? The difference is the balance sheet. So ResMed, yes, something bad has happened, but this business is gonna survive no matter what. And hey, it's now 18% cheaper. Like that mm. is an enormous move. Like how long in the real world does it take for a businesses true value to change by 20%. Like it takes longer than a day, but it can change that quickly in the share market. So, you know, now with that framework, I can kind of sift through those two things and maybe make different decisions. But always allowing yourself that time to pause rather than take action. I think can be helpful. God, that was a very long yeah. No, that's no, great. Right. Right. <laughs> you
0: you, fin- you finished there has just reminded me of one of the quotes that's always stayed with us from the first time we spoke to you back in the Batuta studio years ago, which was uh, markets move quickly but businesses change slowly.
2: Yes, yeah. right. I like, yeah. I like hearing myself. Quote, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> very smart. I totally agree, Emma. <laughs>
0: I think
1: Buffett also said that well, he agrees that temperament is more important than intellect i think is the quote something along those lines definitely i anyway.
2: reckon the smarter you are like to beyond a certain point it's it's not only is it of no use to you as an investor it's probably works against you mm. because You've got to be comfortable with greys. Like there's no black and white in investing and you're never going to get the answer. There is no answer. You've just got to come up with a thesis based on your investing framework and hopefully it's right. But I think really, really smart people can see the risks and they can see both sides of the story and they don't ever get off the fence. Yeah. So yeah, I think everyone I've ever worked with in the industry is smart. It's, it's in no way a differentiating factor. It's just a prerequisite. It's like uni, prerequisite, yeah. be smart. Yeah. Um, but beyond a certain point, um, you know the of that smart set the dummies probably do a bit better
0: yeah. <laughs> nice did you ever think we'd be talking about uni as much in the interview yeah. <laughs> no, I keep bringing it back to uni <laughs> it was a long long time ago
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Emma um I want to move to habits because having some sort of rules-based system or like clear habits that you get used to and and sort of employ is in part of your investing strategy helps to remove that panicked decision or um, a decision that you're going to regret later on. How would you describe the habits in your day-to-day when it comes to investing?
2: Yeah, so the first thing I guess, you know, um I I feel like such a wanker saying this, but <laughs> I'm one of those people that believes that meditation is really, really helpful. Like I've just ever, se- I've started doing it regularly twice a day for the last two years and it's made all the difference Wow! in my life and definitely for investing. And I remember I was listening to this podcast of this meditator who's, you know, been doing it for 50 years. Uh, and he was talking about you know, take this with a grain of salt, I suppose. But he was talking about how the reason he did it was because he felt like it gave him a higher consciousness state. And he said, I know that I've got a higher consciousness state than other people because all I see all the time everywhere is people overreacting to things. And I loved that quote because I thought that is markets. That is markets every day. It is just people overreacting to things every single day. So that's really stayed with me. So on a personal note, I think meditation, many, many life benefits, not just for investing. The other habits, so I think those refrains that I talked about are really helpful. So I just always tell myself if it's in the price, sorry, if it's in the news, it's probably in the price. Mm. Um, And the time at which it's dominating headlines is not the time to get peak bearish. So, you know, we saw that a year ago this time with Medibank, right? Like that was when it was in the news, Dominating the news flow and the share price had fallen thirty percent. That was not the time to get peak bearish. Mm. And interestingly, basically every board we talked to at that time, and actually for the next six months after that, when you talk to them about cybersecurity, they all say it is a matter of when, not if, we will be hacked. So you know that, and and the stocks recovered. So buying it on that, rather than thinking, oh my god, I need to outrun this fear. I need to take action. Um, you know that buying it instead and leaning into the fear was, was, you know, a very lucrative opportunity. I I get a lot of people. So I've just come off the back of like a national roadshow where we're, you know, spruiking, spruiking our wares effectively. And basically every presentation I had somebody ask me about Qantas uh, and Qantas, it's probably going to haunt me because uh, now I put this view out there, but even before when I was talking about, if it's in the news, it's in the price. I think Qantas is the one that springs to mind right now, right. Of like, well, this is the one that's dominating headlines. This is the one where the regulatory pendulum is like really hitting them right now. Surely that makes it the time to buy it. And I think, you know, it does look really, really interesting. But I guess the problem that kind of keeps us away from it at the moment is the CapEx profile. Again, it goes back to that balance sheet discipline, but anyone that's flown Qantas recently Mm -hmm. knows they've got to replace those planes. (laughs) You know, they used to fly planes for about 15 years, and and this is dodgy, right, but it's true, when they... At 15 years, end of their life, they'd sell them to like African Airlines or Latin American Airlines and they'd fly them for another 10 years. Mm. Now, Qantas flies them for the full 25 years. And we feel it as users of that product. So those planes are at the end of their lives. They need to be replaced. And so if we come on board as shareholders now, we're the ones that are funding all of that replacement. Now, that is not the story that's being debated in the, in the news, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's why I'm sort of like, okay, well, one part of me is like, this is it's in the news. It's got to be in the price. But then there's this other really important part of the thesis that isn't really being talked about. So, you know, I guess you have to be – there's always kind of nuances – to a simple refrain, like the one that I'm using. Um, but I, I think it is you know, broadly a pretty powerful one. It's
0: just, it, it's wild that as someone who hasn't looked at Qantas's capital, capital spending at all, it, it's wild that they're not just uh, have like a continuous yeah. uh, replacement program, program that mm-hmm. there's like some budget every year rather than every 25 years <laughs> <Of> we got to <laughs> outlay it all. Well, they used to. Okay. Yeah,
2: they used to, <laughs> but they haven't. They haven't been spending on planes in the yeah, way that they right. should have, which I think is why there's been a lot of anger directed at the management team and board. You know, we owned, we owned the stock from 2016 until, 20, until the pandemic, really, um, and it kind of recovered the, from the pandemic. I think we sold it about $5.50. We ran all the way up, up to 8 bucks, and we felt like idiots. <laughs> now it's come all the way back, and we feel like, Jesus, <laughs> this is investing. Um, but, you know, when we owned it pre-pandemic, it was just a cash machine. Um, virgin were rational and when virgin's rational that golden triangle flights you know up and down the east coast for Qantas is a cash machine now it was a cash machine that they should have been using to reinvest in, in the fleet but they weren't Um, So there was an element of, you know, they were using it instead to pay out dividends and buy back stock. So we were enjoying that as shareholders at the time. But clearly, in hindsight, there was an element of, you know, just bringing forward future returns Mm. um, at the expense of future shareholders. So I guess that's kind of coming home to roost now.
0: Yeah. So, one thing that we are finding, I mean, especially doing this podcast, speaking to experts every week, uh, speaking to members of the equity mates community, it's very easy to get caught up in the investing hype. And uh, we've seen a couple of big sort of hype cycles this year. Um, well, we've come off lithium recently, but then at the start of this year, it was AI. Now, it seems to be Ozempic and weight loss drugs. How, when you're doing your analysis, how do you avoid the, the hot topic, the latest fad, um, and really, I guess try and stay long term and rational. Mm. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's a good question. I mean, like with respect to something like AI, it really helps being a massive luddite. <laughs> I'm, ne- <laughs> I'm never going to be at the forefront of this stuff. Like my husband and I have a joke. You know, like the apocalyptic movies or like zombie movies. How like there's a bunch of people that. Kind of go blissfully in the first wave. Mm. Yeah. And then the whole movie is the rest of them trying to survive. I've yeah. always said, like, I'm a first waver. <laughs> and so if robots are here to kill us, see so, ya. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring <laughs> it on. I'm going in the first wave. <laughs> <laughs> you guys will have to sort it out. Um, So I just, I don't try to be at the forefront. It's people's minds work in different ways, right? Like for some people, and I've met people like this and I, you know, there are incredible investors that are really, really good at this. They just get drawn to this big, big stuff and they really want to figure out these huge trends. Um, My mind doesn't work that way. I'm just genuinely not interested in it. Um, I'm interested, I suppose, in the inverse of like, you know, when's it more than priced in? So if you take a Zempic, for example... When I started to read, you know, a bunch of broker reports saying that it was going to be a global upgrade for airlines because of fuel efficiency Mm -hmm. standards because people were losing weight, I was like, maybe we're at the peak of this. Um,
0: Or that, um, like, Pepsi and Walmart and McDonald's are all going to lose their customers. Yes, yes,
2: exactly. So, like, for ResMed, right, like, I mean, to cut through the noise, you just got to go to the ground and and do the work and, you know, find out what the facts are. So I've been doing like one or two calls a week with sleep doctors in the U.S. for months. I've talked to so many people because at the end of the day, I don't really care what other investors think. I don't care what brokers are saying. I don't Mm -hmm. care what, you know, newspaper reports are saying. I care what doctors are saying, like how are they interpreting the data that's coming out and is it going to make them change their behavior? So the doctors are telling us, no, no. The doctors, I, I remember one, one very eloquent sleep doctor saying, you know, I've watched the you know the, the decimation of the resume share price with interest because I think it's overdone. He said, I think what the investment community are missing is that the history of medicine, it's very very rare to have something new come along and just totally knock out the old way of doing things. Things get layered in terms mm-hmm. of treatment. So in the same way that we didn't see statins cure Cardiovascular disease, um, and we didn't see metformin cure diabetes. Um, it's unlikely that this is going to cure obesity. Uh, what it is, what it what what it will mean is basically the, the the pathway of sort of diagnosis and treatment for sleep apnea in in the US, which is Resmed's dominant market, but it's pretty similar everywhere. Is that you will go to your doctor. Your doctor, usually if you've got a BMI above, say, 30, they'll, they'll probably say to you, you're very likely to have sleep apnea um, and they'll send you off to a sleep lab. Uh, and then, you know, you, you spend the night in a sleep lab and they diagnose you with sleep apnea. He said, what, we'll, what we would all have always said to those patients is, uh, let's talk to you about, let's get you on CPAP, which is the device that Resmet sells. Let's get you on CPAP, um, but also let's talk to you about your weight because you need a weight management plan your sleep apnea will improve if you lose weight and he said now we've just got a tool to, when we talk about a weight management plan we've got something we can prescribe them a tool um, that enhances our ability to help them lose weight that's all that is They're, these doctors aren't saying well we're not going to put them on CPAP um, we're going to send them off for, hope that in two years time they lose enough weight that their sleep apnea is cured and hope they keep it off forever they would they're, they just don't work that way. They're very data driven and they've got, you know, decades of data telling them that when you've got a patient with sleep apnea, you put them on CPAP because it effectively cures that overnight while they're using the mask and they're compliant. So that's what I mean. Like you kind of just cut through the noise. Um, you know, I've presented it in a certain way, I suppose, in this podcast as though there are no risks. And I'm very, very certain of this thing. But that's not the case. You know, there, this is an evolving area. Um, So then what you balance, the facts that you're getting told, you balance them against what you think the share price is implying. So that's when you're looking at the cash flows that a business has generated historically and what you think they're going to do in the future. So you can kind of back solve from the current share price what it's implying in terms of what degree of the their total addressable market are going to be, um, you know, uh, basically no longer available to them because they'll be cured from obesity. And our best guess is it's implying somewhere between 30 to 40% of their total addressable market is no longer available to them. Mm. Now that to us just, so, f- you know, again, taking it back to the facts, about a third, just under a third of patients in, for ResMed have sleep apnea that has nothing to do with their weight. Mm. So f- forget about them. They're, they're locked in, locked and loaded. ResMed will always exist to service that community. So you're left with 70%. So if the share price is implying 30 to 40%, let's call it 35 at the midpoint, versus 70% where it's obesity related, they're basically implying that half of those obesity related patients lose enough weight forever to, to no longer have sleep apnea. I think that's a very, very high hurdle. Now, adherence is an issue. So again, you go to the data, there's a big study from a payer in the US who had a look at what proportion of people that started on these drugs, the GLP-1, ozempic type drugs, what proportion of them are still on them one year later, and the number is 30%. So 70% of people are just coming off them for one reason or another. So again, the idea that that half the market, it's cured, that just seems far-fetched to me.
0: There was a study we looked at, uh, and it was a two-year study. Um, the first year, the patients were on a zempic, and they lost like fifteen to twenty percent of their body weight. And then they were off it for a year, and basically, they all they all put most of yeah. the weight back. On. Yeah, exactly.
2: So, yeah. yeah, and well, that's the other thing is like, y- you know, you it's a good model for. Novo Nordisk, mm. because you need a patient for life. Yeah,
1: hundred I mean, percent. It's designed for that. Yeah, it's designed for that. They're I not going to gonna be like this is the miracle. Exactly. <laughs> One year or you know. Yeah, I
2: have to say, I have been trawling like the zempic Reddit's, mm-hmm. like just to see what people who are actually on these drugs are saying about them. And for a lot of people, it's really life changing, but for a lot of people, it's just intolerable. Yeah, um, like
0: makes people feel sick and stuff exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. And a
2: lot of people saying basically it kind of takes away their enjoyment of life. So, <laughs> I
0: mean. <laughs> what? <laughs> Eating. Well, I think, yeah, because it. It, it affects, suppresses a lot of stuff, doesn't do- it? dopamine,
2: doesn't it? And yeah. stuff like that, yeah. It, yeah, so they're actually looking at it, whether it's going to have applications for like problem gambling or yeah, yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like I'm pro these drugs. I hope they're a massive success. Mm. Like they're going to, you know, add years to people's lives. But. We'll, I think the bet that I'm taking in owning ResMed is that it's too extreme to suggest that, you know, half of their addressable market will disappear, which is what it's pricing in so, so quickly. But yeah, the the, the idea that you'll stay on them forever... God, it seems now, a bit.
0: Now I'm just thinking, could you imagine if this is not only a weight loss drug, but an yeah, addic- yeah. a Get, drug to solve.
2: Addiction. Yeah.
0: Addiction. <laughs> yeah I addiction. Nova
1: Nordisk will be yeah. the most valuable company anyway. anyway, yeah, anyway. anyway stocks. Yeah. We've, yeah. Uh,
0: we've spoken enough about Zempic on the podcast over this year, I think. Um, let's uh, take a quick break here because on the other side, uh, we've got a couple of stocks that we want to unpack. Um, and we maybe we'll tie them back to some of the sy- investing psychology points we've spoken about earlier.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
0: Welcome back to Equity Mates. Uh, we're here with Emma Fisher, the deputy head of equities and portfolio manager at Early Funds Management. Uh, Emma, we've spoken about uh, investing psychology and how you think about, I guess, managing your emotions and building good investment habits to, to cut out the noise and focus on what's important. Uh, we want to turn to a couple of stocks that can sort of bring those themes to life uh, a little bit more. Um, But before then, we had a community question from Charlie. Um, She remembered a previous time you've been on the podcast and spoke about uh, PWR Holdings. uh, And she wanted to know, uh, with the increased interest in F1 over the past few years, uh, particularly due to Drive to Survive, um, has that changed how you think about PWR? So maybe let's start with that. And maybe for people who haven't heard our last interview, a little bit about PWR. Sure. And then we can go from there.
2: Yes. Well, thank you, Charlie, for the question. It's a good question. I think a lot of people that liked F1 before Drive to Survive hate (laughs) Drive to Survive and hate non-purists like me that only really know about the sport through this Netflix show. Mm. Um, You know, I guess to answer the question directly, it's helpful in the sense that anything that makes the sport more popular generates more revenue for the teams, which gives them a bigger budget to pay PWR out of. So that's good. But more broadly, the PWR thesis. So often... um, so. I talked about how the first step in our process is balance sheet. The second step in our process, and basically we spend a lot of our time, is business quality. Um, and for us, the metric that you look at for quality is return on invested capital. Um, it's it's such a good metric because, you know, it takes all of the noise and the judgment out of, you know, you know trying to assess whether business is good or not. Um, you know, I remember like probably last time that we did the podcast, you know, Afterpay would have been a top 20 ASX stock. Yeah. Um, The whole buy now, pay later space. Again, if you just have this rule of, if a business is a good business, it's going to show up in its returns. It's going to be a high returning business. So a business like, you know, all the buy now, pay later space, uh, you know, people were attracted to these huge total adjustable markets, but none of them ever made money. So they didn't even have a return on investor capital. It was negative because they were loss making. So you've got this really clean metric that takes all the emotion out of it. Um, so what is a high return on investor capital? I think, you know. so the average business is probably about 12%. A good business I think is one that can sustain better than 15% for a long time. Uh, a great business would do better than 20. Often we find businesses by screening for, for listed companies that have sustained a high return on investor capital for a long period of time. And through doing that, it threw off a list at this time um, that PWR was on a number of years ago. And it had a return on investor capital in the 60s. Wow. So that's like your big clue. It only IPO'd in 2015, so you don't have a huge length of time to judge that over. Uh, It was net cash, so like looked good to us on that metric. Um, The third thing we look at is management quality and we're really big fans of founder-led businesses. And this was a founder of their business. The, the guy, Keys Wheel, he's the CEO. He was like a mechanic um, in this, uh, I think he started in the 60s. And he basically, you know, he and his son were like, yeah, we can make radiators. And then they went to like a trade show and Red Bull came up and was like, oh, could you make one for us? And they're like, yeah, we can do it. And apparently the guy who was standing next to was like, shoving in the ribs being like no we can't what are you committing to he's like yeah we'll have one to you in six weeks time um and they did and they loved it and then um the first year that they put it on was the first year that red bull won in ages with sebastian vettel um so they went from supplying cooling systems to red bull uh this would have been i don't know 15 years ago and then they've just gotten every single um team now in formula one so they supply them all now, who were they using before? Mostly their internal teams. Mm-hmm. So their engineers are basically gone, oh, well, these guys do it better. Let's just outsource that part of the car to PWR. So it's a brilliant model. Now, when you go to their site in the Gold Coast, it's pretty cool because you can see they've got all these little separate Rooms where they're making stuff for each of the separate teams oh, nice. so that they can't, can't kind of see, I suppose, yeah, yeah. see what each other are oh, making. Oh, yeah.
0: so like um, there's engineers assigned to each team and they yeah, don't... Never yeah, the two and they made. work
2: with the... Enge- like, you know, basically they work with Red Bull. Red Bull engineering team might have an idea. Let's try a curved... I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. Do not... Like, I don't have the terminology. <laughs> Let's try a curved do wacky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then that will be faster. <laughs> um, so they try different things with the different teams. But... It's, yeah, so that's half their business. And then the other sort of exciting kind of growth angle for the business is that a lot of the stuff that they've got in this Gold Coast plant, and they've also now got a plant in the UK, um, a lot of the stuff that they own from a CapEx perspective can be used in other markets. So EVs are going to be a big one for them. For EVs, thermal management is really important to the performance of a battery. You've got to keep it within a range so it's quite a, a bit more sophisticated, um, the the system that's required to cool a battery. So that I think that they're going to win a lot of share there. There are other applications like uh, radar and satellites and um, aerospace, unmanned um, like drones and things like that. So they're like a really, you know, basically sophisticated engineering outfit focused on thermal management um, with... You know, fifty percent of their business kind of throwing off the cash flows and the investment in the technology to stay at the leading edge of this stuff. And then they've got some huge addressable markets where they can apply that technology. That's the thesis. Fly in the ointment. Um, when we first bought it, so I've talked through so we start with the balance sheet, with then we're looking at business quality, then we're looking at management quality. The final step for us is valuation. Now when I first bought it, it was this business with sixty percent return on investor capital. And the P ratio was like 24 times which is a smidgen more than the average business in the market. So again I said the average company makes about a 12% return. This company was doing 60 hmm. and you're paying like one or two times higher P point for it. So I thought oh my god this is a no brainer and we made it one of our largest positions. Now, you know, luckily it has more than doubled but A lot of that has been driven by a re-rate in the Mm. PE. So now the valuation today is on just under 40 times earnings. So I think it's a cracking bottom draw investment for the next decade. But I'm just flagging that that valuation piece has changed and it's certainly pricing in a lot more of the upside, Mm. um, which mathematically has to reduce the, you know, the future returns. yeah um, So we still like it. We still like every part of the story, but just that valuation piece is not the same as, you know, when we bought it at five bucks, it's now like ten fifty
0: Yeah. So on, you know, we're talking about investing emotions and uh, I want to take you back to the first half of this year where uh, many people who own this stock probably felt a little bit emotional. Uh, between February and June, it fell about 30%. Mm-hmm. And you know it would have been expensive at the start of the year and then it fell a lot. Uh, and I'm sure that some people panic sold. Uh, so take us into the room uh, at early at that time. How are you thinking about it? How are you managing the emotional time of seeing it fall pretty substantially in a pretty short period of time?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. So in January, we halved our position because it had performed so well, it got to $12.20 uh, and it had become the largest stock in our portfolio. And again, you know, nothing under the, nothing in the thesis had changed, but the valuation had changed. Mm. Um, so we felt that it no longer warranted such a large position. Um, so it, I mean, that's that in itself is a difficult. Mm. That's you've you've got you know we've talked about the psychology of like when things are going wrong, but the psychology of what to do when things are going yeah, right is yeah. is equally difficult because you know you've got. Um, you know, you've got a lot of positive association with the business. You've gotten it right. So you think like, you know, God, I'm an absolute genius on this stock. <laughs> um, and, you know, you just have to kind of stick to your knitting. So we did half the position. But look, like if we were brilliant investors, we would have completely sold out and then swooped in 30% later. Mm. Um, so we didn't do that. So obviously, you know, we we rode that 30% fall as well on that half that we had remaining. Um, but, you know, things things don't go up every year, right? Yeah. Like that's... That's the reality, um, I guess, what I was saying before about not every stock in your portfolio has to work for you every year. This one had been a cracking performer over the prior two years that we'd owned it. It gives back over gives back a year. Hopefully, it you know, yeah. rallies from there. Mm. Well,
0: I mean, um, the thing is, if you had sold uh, when it was you know, falling, that 30%, you wouldn't have missed the recovery in the second half of the year. Exactly. Like, no one times it perfectly. Exactly. Yeah.
2: So I think it's just another example of how... Um, I think what we're... So I get a lot of friends kind of ask me, you know, what's your best stock idea? And really, (laughs) as you can imagine, and really what they're asking, they they may not even know this, but what they're really asking is, tell me a stock that's only going to go up every single day from the day that you tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want linear growth. Mm. And nothing in life gives you linear growth. The only thing, like, it's not a natural concept, right? The only thing that gives you that growth forever is, like, cancer, right? So, like, growth forever is a bad thing in nature. It's not a natural phenomenon. So we shouldn't be expecting it from investments um, from companies. And it is that expectation or that desire for linear growth that causes dramatic overvaluations of companies. Now, we try to like bow out when we see it happening. Like we started to see it happening with PAWS, so we reduced our position. But there are many companies out there on the ASX that if the, if the task was pick the best companies with the best prospects, you could name these companies, these businesses like REA. Um, you know, uh, car sales, businesses like that. Uh Prometicus, cracking business. Mm-hmm. But in investing, that's not the task. That's only half the task. The task is find good investments. And a big part of that is, you know, find stocks that are going to go up. Now, a good business can always be overvalued, always. You know, we found that the tech bubble, like everyone thinks the tech bubble was just tech stocks. It was such a broad-based rally that if you'd bought, you know, um, if you bought... Pff, like a, a Disney in 1999 or, um, you know, like a Procter and & Gamble and things, like they went on to fall 70% in mm. the next year. Um, Microsoft, if you bought Microsoft in 1999 at the peak and then, you know, suffered the drawdown, you've if, if the goal was pick one of the winners for the next few decades, you've nailed the goal, but it took you 17 years to get your money back from the peak. So you can always overpay for a good business and that's what we're very wary of and that's why you know, even though we'd love to own some of what we think are the best businesses in Australia, you know, I know that you guys did a podcast with my colleague, um, Will Granger, who was talking about News Corp. A lot of our interest in News Corp is because we think REA is hands down the best listed business, but we can't own it because it doesn't pass our, you know, valuation filter. Um, doesn't mean it won't go up. Believe me, it's been going up the whole time I've been saying this. I think on our last podcast, I, I said it was it was um, probably, I thought, the highest quality business. Um, but you know, you kind of get a cheaper access point through News Corp, yeah. Um, which has also done done well. So,
1: Emma, speaking of some of the best businesses in Australia, one that um, often pops up is mineral resources, and uh, it's, a bit, it's a stock that you uh, have brought to the table today. So, let's start at the top again for those that have just tuned into Equity Mates for the first time. What is mineral resources, mm-hmm. and uh, and why why are you interested in it?
2: mineral resources so it's it's actually funnily enough another one that we stumbled across through screening for high returning companies and what so we did a screen for businesses that have generated return investor capital of i think greater than 15 percent for the last decade this would have been back in 2017 i think and it spat off this list and mineral resources was one of them which really surprised us because it was a mi- it's a mining services company so most mining services companies you know they, they make good returns like one year in 10 when commodity prices are high and the other nine years, you know, they're blowing up. So that that intrigued me. I kind of wanted to understand why it was in this list, in this kind of like um, exalted company, when I had put it in the bucket of, um, you know, shitty businesses, to be honest. And um, the heart of the model, like the key difference, so it is a mining services company at its heart, um, but the difference is, so most mining services companies you know, they, they would work on like a CapEx project. So if BHP is bringing up a new mine, they'll put it out to tender. These mining services companies will win the project. They'll build the mine and then they're done. Um, so there's money to be made when there's work around and there's no money to be made when there's not. Now the CapEx cycle in commodities is driven by the commodity price. So it's incredibly cyclical. Mineral resources mining services business is production linked. So they do crushing for the majors So they do crushing for Rio, BHP, Roy Hill. Um, Now, production in WA, in commodities, has been like a secular growth story. And you produce every day. It doesn't matter – given where these assets sit on the cost curve, they're absolutely the bottom end of the cost curve. It doesn't matter what the commodity price is doing, they're producing. So they're crushing ore. Uh, And they own all of the kit. So basically, if you go to like Mount Whale back at BHP's mine – the part of the mine that mineral resources run, they own it all and it's their staff on site. So, again, like mining services companies, the risk is you get kicked off a contract and somebody else comes in. If they wanted to kick Min off, um, Min would pack up that part of the mine and so BHP would lose all of that production and bring somebody else in, a lot of operational risk in that. So it just doesn't happen. So they've got very, very long tenure and they're able to make really good returns day every single day out of this mining services business. The other thing that's a little bit different about them is the guy that runs it and founded it. So, another founder of their business, Chris Ellison, he's got a very, very good track record of basically being an awesome deal maker, incredible value creator. So, what they do is they, the model is basically like they put their foot on a resource. So, there are a lot of explorers out there, and I wouldn't touch any of them. Like, this is, if you want to blow up, <laughs> if you want to just buy a lottery ticket, like, if you want to blow up, you know, your, your, PA portfolio, it, go out and buy a WA Explorer because the time that you buy them will be the time when that commodity price is high and they will be, you know, telling you that, that they've got, you know, it, well, actually I've said WA Explorer, but there are all sorts of African Explorers yeah. that you can, mm. if you really want to lose your money. <laughs> um, so for Explorers, they don't have a balance sheet. All they've got is, you know, a patch in the ground and they're all telling you that they've got an enormous resource. Um, so what they do is they buy, you know, they're savvy about where they buy, they sa- they buy counter cyclically. So they're usually buying, um, you know, when that commodity is not necessarily in favor, but they buy, um, they get their foot on the asset and then they bring up the mine because they've got in this mining services business, they've got people that know how to build and run mines. So they bring up the mine themselves. Um, then they lock in the life of mine mining services contract to themselves, which is great because you're never going to kick yourself off a project. So then you've got in these assets, if they have like a 30 year mine life, which some of their lithium assets do, for example, you know you've got 30 years of earnings in that mining services stream, and then they'll sell down the asset, which reduces their exposure to the commodity price um, cycle. So that's what they did with Wajinah. Wagener. Wajinah is their biggest lithium mine, and it was um, it was a tantalum mine. And they figured out it might have some lithium in it, and they bought it for so ch- so cheaply that the company that sold it to them then got sued by its investors no for giving it away <laughs> for a song. What? Yeah, so. Um, So, again, like that's not – when you start to see this pattern of somebody always being in the right place at the right time, like I think there's a reason why there's so many billionaires in Australia are mining billionaires because there's so much value to be created over in WA if you know where to look. Mm. So I think you follow the people in WA and he is an incredible value creator. So he was in the right place at the right time with that asset, bought it online, built this mine, sold half of it to Albemarle for a price that I think they – I think $3.2 billion – they sold half of it, so 1.6. They sold to Albemarle, and at the time, I think the market cap of Min was like two and a half bill. Oh wow! So, like, it was an incredible deal at the time, and you know, so that threw off a lot of cash that they then used to invest in other parts of their business. Um, and now they're doing it again in iron ore. They're bringing on a, a low-cost iron ore asset. Um, so there's a lot of production growth in lithium. There's a lot of production growth in iron ore to come. Now, this year, the stock's gone from 90 bucks to 60. Because uh, lithium, price, lithium prices mm. have fallen. Yeah. Now, again, I think you just need to zoom out, right? This business has gone from you know twelve bucks when we first bought it to ninety at one point. Now back down to sixty. You know, it's it's this is it's commodities, right? It's going to be a volatile ride. Um, at its core, this bis, you know, this model is improving in my view, getting bigger, and they're doing it again. You've seen that they've been putting their foot on all of these little lithium assets. Um, that are located quite close to Mount Marion which is their other lithium mine so I think the game plan there is probably um, you know to again either bring up these mines and give themselves a life of mine contract or some sort of consolidation piece so you know essentially you know you're backing the people and this guy's got a great track record of of value creation he had another one um, when the iron ore price fell a few years ago a high cost iron ore asset was put into receivership, and they went to the government and said, The government didn't want it to be shut down because they didn't want all the jobs in the area to be gone. Um, so they said, well, well, we'll keep it running. And I think they bought it for a dollar, and they got like five years royalty free from the government. And then the iron ore price turned, and within a quarter, I think that asset was making like a hundred million dollars a for them. A <laughs> um, so, like this, it's it's a non-zero. You know, like the, the probability of somebody knocking it out of the park in lithium by buying a tantalum mine, knocking it out of the park in iron ore. You know, there's clearly he's got this incredible mindset. He knows where the value is, so you're backing that. But it's not going to be a smooth ride. It's going to be very volatile.
0: So It is the question. Uh, I've just had a little bit of a look at Chris Ellison. He's 66 years old, mm-hmm. and uh, the success of at Minres has made him a billionaire. Uh, I think, according to the AFR, is a 55. He's 55 on their rich list. What happens if he decides? You know what? I've done enough for my yeah. life. I'm going to enjoy the billions of dollars I've created. <laughs> <laughs> buy a yacht or something. Yeah. How do you think about uh, Minres without? You know, if so much of Uh, the WA mining story is follow the find the right people and follow them Uh, what if Chris decides to pack it up
2: really good question right so that's one of the risks in the investment Um, and this is always one of the risks for investing in founder-led businesses it's the same with PWR to be honest you know keys is not a spring chicken and you know a part of our every time that we meet with management team and boards like you kind of have to stay on top of the succession question now Min always say that they've got you know a better strength of people that they think they can take over the other side of it is i think chris wants to do it forever
1: yeah mm. yeah. these billionaires do yeah yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: i don't think it's about the money for him Mm. i think it's about like he's just a businessman Mm. and sorry like not businessman in like the you know he says use and stuff (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) um like he's a deal maker um he loves it, yeah. So, And we want him to do it forever, right? Like, as long, you know, as long as he's doing a good job. Um, but the succession thing is a risk, I think. Um, and they would point to some bench strength. But I think over the years, you know, it would be great if a really obvious candidate emerged.
1: In terms of your final process at Early being the valuation hurdle, it's what was it? Off 30, 35% since start of year. Where does it sit in terms of valuation?
2: Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a cracking idea here for sure. Nice. I mean, so you remember, lower <laughs> prices, lower risk.
1: Yeah, yeah, but yeah. you never know. It's still like considerably higher than when it, when you bought it in at twelve bucks. So it's our
2: second largest position. Yeah. So we think there's some good value there. Um, I think you've got to have you've got to have the appetite for volatility if you're investing in resources. Like, what what are the risks? Where could I be wrong in the short term? You know, lithium could go to eight hundred dollars a ton for sure. Um, that wouldn't be my base case. I think I'm really interested to watch right now, because what we've got with lithium is a very nascent cost curve. It hasn't seen, so you've had a lot of supply come online that's very high cost in China. It's called lipidolite, it's very low grade. And so when we draw out what we think the cost curve looks like, we think that that Chinese lipidolite, which is you know about 20% of supply, we think it doesn't make money at current prices. So. If we're right on that, you should see that supply be curtailed and then prices stabilize.
0: Is the, is the counter argument to that, though, that um, Chinese lithium miners don't need to make money? Like, If it's a strategic priority to yeah. own battery metals, China Absolutely. will subsidize and it. And that's
2: what I'm worried about. Yeah. Because you can see with BYD, basically, the other thing that I'm worried about, I've always ignored the demand side because I think supply matters more. But the demand side obviously is a big part of the story here because everyone's got from here to 2030 this really nice linear um, increase in EV penetration. And you're starting to see signs that the OEMs, basically, China is flooding the world with cheap EVs Mm. via BYD. Um, And probably, to your point, working it all the way back through the supply chain and losing money everywhere because they want to dominate EVs with BYD. And the. Western OEMs are in a real quandary because you know, like Ford for example, is using five billion dollars a year yeah. mm-hmm. in, in electric mm-hmm. vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, they cannot compete, um, and their shareholders aren't going to be. You know, everyone wants you know the everyone wants the energy transition to occur, but they don't want to be the shareholders funding it. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure on the management teams and boards. What are they going to do? Um, I suspect what we start to see is like a little bit of a walk back um, maybe pushing hybrids rather than pure um, electric vehicles and that has implications for demand so uh, that's the bare thesis for lithium and that's something that we have a very open mind to now for Min it's not so they have uh, um, an iron ore asset that's coming online next year at Onslow that's um, going to be a cracking asset for them and they should earn um, you know, many billions of dollars from that asset, particularly if iron ore stock prices stay anywhere near where they are now. Um, and they've also got this mining services business, which is about 700 mil um, EBITDA today, probably going to about a bill when this iron ore asset comes online because surprise, surprise, they're giving themselves a contract. <laughs> um, so those two pieces of earnings, you know, have nothing to do with the lithium side of the business. So we feel we can take on the risk, especially now that lithium, lithium prices have gone where they've gone, right? Like, again, when lithium prices have fallen 75%, now is not the time to get peak bearish on lithium. But it's such a nascent industry that it's you've got to pay attention to this stuff because you can be really wrong. So again, like I just like to bring it back to the facts and you know stay nimble. And if the facts change, you're always allowed to change your mind. And that's probably why, even though I think it's an incredible asset, I personally would find it difficult to buy Pilbara minerals here because it is pure pay lithium. Now it's it's really interesting, right? Because it's it's net cash, got a good management team, it's a good quality asset, it's very low on the cost curve. If we we have a bench of stocks that we would love to own that we think, you know, it, the quality falls away really quickly in resources. So there's probably only a handful of businesses that fit our process that we think are actually investable under our process. And Pilgrim Minerals is one of them. So we're very positively disposed to that business. But we just haven't been brave enough to pull the trigger there because of this kind of bare thesis on lithium that um, that we're still exploring.
1: Yeah. Well, Emma, we could, uh, keep chatting stocks all day, but unfortunately we have run out of time. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming in today and, and sharing your time with us. Thank you to, uh, Charlie and Mark for the questions for Emma. Um, if you'd like more information on early funds, we'll put a link in the show notes, but thank you so much. Fascinating as always.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You have been listening
1: to an Equity Mates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant Product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. EquityMates Media operates under an Australian financial services license five four zero six nine seven.